Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Well, with virus cases falling, reports tonight of schools reopening next month. We'll have the very latest from Paul Quinn live at the Department of Health. Nurses slam conditions on the healthcare front line. They'll tell us why staff are at absolute breaking point. We'll also be live in Washington as Donald Trump faces impeachment proceedings again. And as the country prepares for a possible winter snowstorm, just what exactly are we facing into? Get in touch on Twitter or hashtag, as always, tonight, VMTV. Media news reporter Paul Quinn is at the Department of Health for us tonight where another fall in virus cases has been reported. But first, reports breaking tonight about a reopening plan for our schools. Paul, what do we know at this point? Yes, good evening, Kira. Well, I don't think it's any surprise that the government's plan, the Department of Education's plan, is for a phased reopening of schools. Now, tonight, the Irish Times is reporting that primary and secondary schools are likely to reopen on a phased basis over a three-week period ahead of the Easter uh, break. For those in primary school, it's uh, suggesting that perhaps junior and senior infants would go back first, and not surprisingly, uh, the priority for secondary school would be those in exam years. Now, a lot of these details are still being worked out um, as we speak, we know that intense negotiations are underway between all sides, including the unions and student representative bodies and the various stakeholders. Those talks, particularly around the leaving cert and also the junior cert, getting uh, those intense discussions getting underway again over the weekend. And we understand that there's a lot of anxiety among students. They want to know what exactly is going to happen. And you're likely to see perhaps further details on the leaving cert and the junior cert as well. It's important to mention the junior cert, uh, if not later this week, perhaps early next week, at Norma Foley, the Minister expected to perhaps bring a full uh, memo to Cabinet next Tuesday for that Leaving Cert plan. And of course, then on the back of that, you would see the plan around the further reopening of schools. And we know that uh, the reopening of special education is a top priority. Uh, special schools reopening this Thursday, special classes and mainstream schools reopening from the 22nd. But if figures and the cases still keep going in the right direction, then there's more pressure on the government and the Minister uh, to get schools reopened as quickly as possible. And what were those uh, figures today, Paul? They seem to be going in that right direction you talk about. Yeah, they are indeed. The figures are going in the right direction this evening. Now, although the, the number of deaths still remain relatively high, Kira, uh, the department confirming 68 further deaths this evening. Now, 50 of those took place in January, 15 in, or 50 rather in February, 15 in January and two in December. The people aged 
between 43 and 96. Now, this evening, the department also confirming another 556 new cases. Now, that is the lowest number of cases that we've seen since mid-December, around the 18th of December. So certainly uh, that is some good news as well. Now, the situation in hospitals is also continuing to improve. We've seen figures and admissions go down every single day. Uh, currently, 1,104 people in hospital with COVID-19, 178 of those in the ICU. And of course, the other figures that are looking good as well is the uh, rollout of the COVID vaccination programme. Currently, 236,996 doses of the vaccine have been administered and more than 84,000 of those have received a second jab. And briefly, a poll, the tarnished uh, Leo Varadkar, as he's inclined to do, give a little bit more detail of what we might expect uh, come March the 5th. The possible easing of some restrictions. What did he have to say? Yeah, well, Leo Varadkar today saying that any reopening will be slow, it'll be gradual, it'll be cautious. Of course, as you say, the current restrictions are due to expire on March 5th, but I don't think anyone is expecting uh, widespread reopening of the economy. And also the housing minister suggested in recent days, Leo Varadkar again today, talking about the possible reopening of construction, but education really is the top priority. Now, less optimistic, unfortunately, for those um, in personal services, hairdressers, barbers, saying he wouldn't give a timeline when they may uh, reopen, but saying that it will be uh, much later than the March 5th date. Now, uh, Thonish also today saying that a revised Living with Covid plan is also due to be published in around two weeks' time. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you for that uh, update. Paul Quinn at the Department of Health. I'm joined now by Phil Nihay of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. Um, Phil, you were speaking in front of the Health Committee today and you spoke about the stress and the burnout that your members are facing on the front line. And you were also very critical today about the haphazard nature of the initial rollout of the vaccine. Uh, I'm wondering, first of all, how many of your members on the front line with direct patient contact are still waiting uh, for that vaccination and in what areas of the hospital are they working? Well, that depends, uh, Kira. Um, the vaccine numbers that Paul has just um, advised you of there, that's the total number of vaccinations that have been administered. And uh, within that, we have healthcare workers. So at the moment, we know that 70,000 of, of the people who have been vaccinated are awaiting their second dose. And, and there, a lot of those are healthcare workers. We're looking for the actual breakdown and the breakdown of patient-facing frontline staff vis-a-vis mm. um, -vis all others. And um, uh, we were critical today. Our members were absolutely enraged, I think is the only way I could describe it, when um, the vaccine, which is the, is the beacon of hope, you know, when you're working in these environments wearing PPE day in, day out for just over a year, and uh, then you see uh, non-frontline staff getting a vaccine, it's very, very difficult to understand how a system that is legally obliged to provide you with a, a safe and a healthy area of work could allow uh, that type of, of a rollout. So we now have a sequencing document, which is um, unions engaged with the HSE, and we have a sequencing document which sets out the sequencing of administration of the vaccine for staff. And um, the, th that document was agreed on the 12th of January and updated on the 19th. But again, um, today we had examples of where glitches happened and where um, uh, members rang us to say, look, um, I was in the queue and um, I was advised that um, 
I, I couldn't get the vaccine. They, they had finished the administration. But I saw people who are not frontline patient-facing staff getting the vaccine. Mm. And we don't need this type of, of issue arising at this point. And we have to make sure that the system is organized in a manner that ensures that that doesn't happen. And where it does, there has to be an immediate reaction to that to make sure that those that are at highest risk are those that are protected. And if you ask the HSE for those uh, figures, Phil, for how many patient-facing uh, frontline staff have yet to be vaccinated, I mean, do we have that kind of information at this point? We don't have it, but we're advised that we will have it very soon. The new IT system that the HSE have put in place, it had some teething problems with what they've said to us, but they're very confident that they will have that information. That information is really important because we have to concentrate on the patient-facing workforce, obviously, because we know that um, in hospitals where clusters are arising, it, they are arising in the workforce that is mo most um, patient-facing. Yeah, so, for example, just... of, all, of all of the infections in healthcare workers, 50% of them are either in nursing and midwifery, make up 25%, and healthcare assistants make up the other 25 so that's a really high figure. So it, that of itself tells us a very contagious virus and the closer you are to um, the patient who is infected, the more at risk you are. Um, I just want to get your reaction to comments from the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, as she's speaking on News Talk this evening. And she said there may be circumstances where um, frontline workers who are in direct contact you know, with patients uh, will have to get the vaccine. It will be made mandatory. There could be certain circumstances. What's your reaction to that suggestion? I haven't heard that, but um, I know that the only request we're getting at the moment is, when can I get the vaccine? And so it's um, not there something an your union would oppose in any way? Well, I, I don't think there's going to be a need. I actually don't think there's going to be a need. You know, there's this debate on and off about mandatory vaccinations and, and whether or not it, it, it is necessary. Our understanding is the Attorney General had looked at this uh, previously and um, the minister at the time, Minister Harris, was um, fairly uh, clear on, on the fact that there was no legal entitlement to mandate vaccinations. Um, I'm, I'm not aware that that has changed, but I, I'll tell you right now, the people we represent are saying to us, when can I get the vaccine? They're not asking us um, uh, when, when, you know, uh, to, in, any, in any circumstance other than this is a really high-risk situation. Um, you also... And uh, we want to make sure we can get the vaccine ahead of those that are, that are not in the front line uh, and you, um, not patient-facing. You also repeated your call for some sort of recognition or compensation for the stress and the extra workload that you said that your members have faced. Briefly, um, Phil, what exactly are you looking for? Well, last November, we lodged a claim um, with the HSE, all of the health sector unions did, in fact, for the additional um, ask that has been placed upon the health service workforce and the additional hours they've worked. Many of those hours haven't been recorded. Many lunch breaks have been missed. Many days off have been missed. And people have just really gone beyond what would be considered, I think, any normal reaction. They have really pulled out all the stops and they've continued to do that. And in, in reality, that does need to be recognised. And what we've said is there has to be additional time given to these um, very, very 
um, extraordinary healthcare workers. All right, we'll leave it there. But Fulney Hay, uh, thank you for your time this evening. And here with me now are Education Junior Minister and Fianna Foyle TD Nile Collins and Labour's Aon O'Reardon. You're both very welcome to the programme. I want to start uh, with you, Nile. Um, any confirmation on what's going to happen with our schools? Can you confirm the details that Paul Quinn reported this evening? March the 5th, phased reopening over three weeks. Yeah, so there'll be there'll be a government decision about this, I, I think, next week at Cabinet. Um, that will be ultimately a decision for Cabinet to take, but there has been huge resolve among all the stakeholders, the Minister, the Department itself, uh, the unions and um, the parents' reps and the students' reps. Everybody wants to see this progress. The numbers, the public health numbers are going in the right direction, as we can see um, from this evening's um, statistics. So. The twin track approach of uh, returning to school and also uh, mapping out a, a process for the, the leaving certificate are, are ongoing. Um, so everybody, how confident would you be that our schools will open in some capacity on March the 5th? Yeah, look, I mean, I can't say it here tonight, but what I can say to you is this, like, there, you know, the, the, the talks and the consultations have progressed very, very well. There's been great buy-in from everybody. There's a, a unity of purpose around this. Um, you know, homeschooling is going ahead, but it's far from ideal, as we know, and there's loads of challenges. But we also want to give certainty uh, to families and to students in terms of, uh, the, you know, where the horizon is out there in terms of exams and return to school. So, so do you we're, think we're the possibility a, then of this phased reopening, as the Irish Times are reporting this yeah, evening, yeah. That, that does seem the most likely, you know, yeah, my, your classes back first in primary school and the exam classes back first in secondary school. Yeah, is that really the most my, realistic? My own, my own view is that I think you will see a scaling up, um, you know, like you've, um, like you've described there, but particularly with emphasis in secondary school for leaving certs and for junior certs who are the exam classes naturally. Uh, they, they are the people who are uh, facing into state exams or, or an alternative which has been worked up also and it was important I think that uh, that we listened uh, to the students in particular to give that choice in terms of the leaving certificate because this year's leaving certificates were impacted last year as fifth years and the the uncertainty and the stress that it has caused isn't lost on any of us I, I, you know I'm a parent myself I've school going children in secondary school I get it and I understand it and we want to work through this but we are in an extremely challenging pandemic as you know and all the challenges that go with that public health advice overrides everything. Uh, the Labour Party today uh, launched their national aggressive um, strategy against uh, COVID-19. Um, Aon, I'm just wondering, would you agree with schools reopening on March the 5th as part of that strategy? Is that what you see happening? <clears throat> well, I think a report like this in the Irish Times is extremely unhelpful and it doesn't help the process. And I know what's going to happen tomorrow is that parents, teachers, SNAs, students will be onto my office, I'm sure, onto the minister's office trying to find out, find out more information. What worked in terms of opening up the special schools and special classes after a lot of media mismanagement, I might say, was that the department and, and, and the ministers went into lockdown with negotiations for about 10 days and an announcement was made when everything was agreed. Now, what doesn't help the process is for a report to come out in the Irish Times before everything is absolutely agreed. So I understand from what the minister is saying that there's going to be an announcement on Tuesday Everybody wants to see schools reopen. It is profoundly damaging, profoundly damaging for young people and for children not to be at school. And we've advocated. So does the Labour Party believe but the, yeah, that but, we but, should be reopening schools? But the, but the, on March but the issue is that what happens when you open up a, a debate around a report is that we begin to look at different sides when the real side here is suppressing the virus. We can't have a situation where schools reopen and then they have to be 
closed again. So if because we don't have the numbers down, if we to don't, it's not realistic to it's open. It's not realistic. It's not. Hold on. Well, I want schools open if it is, if it is agreed and if it is safe. But we can't have a situation where the numbers are a situa- are, are, are down, but then they rise again and the schools have to close again. So what we're talking about in terms of an aggressive suppression strategy is about quarantine, is about uh, tracing, is about having less people at work. I mean, it's obvious from traffic that I can see that more people are physically going to work than necessarily should be. So be and saying, it is about uh, other, Aeon, other elements as well. you wouldn't open the schools until we have covid suppressed to a very low level I, in this. I, I, want to, I want to see uh, schools open when it's safe to do so, but I don't want them to see them open just to close again. Now, look, governments are talking about uh, legislation next week on quarantine. They're talking about two countries. The UK are now talking about 33 countries. There's no reason why we couldn't just be leaders in this across Europe and say, you know something, we will have a mandatory quarantine scenario for everybody coming into the country so that we don't have a scenario of this rolling lockdown and open up again, because I know the minister will agree people are completely at breaking point. And this would break, I think, children and parents again if we reopened on March the 5th for three weeks, closed for Easter, and then we see numbers surge again. And Mm. we have another closure before summer. Yeah, and and that's why we have to have a very managed reopening. You know, the reopenings that we've experienced in wave one and wave two of COVID, uh, you know, we won't see that on this occasion. I don't think we'll ever, you know, we'll have to really manage it and stagger it and look at all the various aspects of our Living With COVID plan. And we said when we produced the Living With COVID plan levels one to five, that it would always be a plan that could be modified and would have to be adapted and to react uh, to, to the public health scenario that we're finding ourselves in. So now with the new variants and the challenges that they are bringing, and uh, you know, coming off the, the, the back of the, the, the surge in numbers during Christmas, we have learned a lot. So we're learning a lot as we go along and it will be different. So the opening will be very, very gradual. And I think it's important to manage people's expectations around that because you know, we, it won't be just come the 5th or 6th of March, it'll be everything opens and we go back to normal again. That won't be the way. So that, that will also be a detail uh, further discussions with the Cabinet subcommittee, with NEFIT, uh, and ultimately it'll be a decision which will be taken by, by Cabinet and communicated by the Taoiseach, Michal Martin. Well, it doesn't sound then, now like there's going to be any chance that the IMO's request today at that health committee that schools be reopened for the children of frontline workers as a matter of priority is going to be granted. Yeah, look... If we are being straight with okay, you. Well, I, I wasn't at it, but, um, I, I don't know how feasible or practical that is in, you know, in, in, in relation to, to the reopening of the schools or, or would it work in terms of the staging or the staggering of the reopening of schools. But look, I mean, the, the, the point uh, which was emphasised from what I've heard in relation to the health committee today is uh, the, the, the stress and the strain that our frontline healthcare workers are under. We get that, we understand that, and we're doing our best to try and support them. They are part of cohort two and the vaccination schedule. Uh, the issues which Phil Nihay raised, I have heard anecdotally in, in parts of the country, and you know they have to be addressed. They yeah. shouldn't be happening. And we're going to address those uh, in the second part of this programme and also address the comments from our Tanishta today who held out hope of the promise of meeting our loved ones after March the 5th. Uh, we'll be discussing that. And also we're live in Washington as Donald Trump's second impeachment trial begins. Stay with us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Well, more in a moment on the slow reopening of society after this lockdown. But first, let's go live to Washington now, where Donald Trump's historic second impeachment trial is underway. He's accused of incitement of insurrection. And we're joined by CNN correspondent Nadia Romero from uh, D.C. Breaking news, Nadia, the Senate has just voted that the trial is constitutional, that it can proceed. Uh, this is one of the Republicans' arguments, wasn't it, that this wasn't constitutional at all and, and shouldn't even have started? That's exactly right, Kira. And this was the, the first hurdle for Democrats and impeachment managers who wanted to proceed with the impeachment trial. And so we saw President Trump's, the former president's lawyers say he's a former president. So it's unconstitutional to move forward with an impeachment of someone who's no longer a sitting president. They also said that he was denied his due process and that he also is just the victim of revengeful Democrats who are out to get him. Well, we saw that vote, as you mentioned, just happening, 56 to 44, showing us that six Republican senators voted along with Democrats on the question of whether or not this was constitutional, voting yes. So that means that you had a bipartisan support of senators believing that this impeachment trial could move forward. So that was the first hurdle for Democrats, for impeachment managers. Now we're moving forward with the trial as a whole, and we will see over the next couple of days a House impeachment managers and President Trump's defense team laying out their case. Kira? So what is the, you know, the prosecution, um, the Democrats' case? What are they arguing and what evidence have they got? Well, we saw today uh, with their presentation video after video of that Capitol Hill riot that we saw that ended up uh, people losing their lives and being injured. Nearly 200 people have been arrested and charged in connection with that insurrection that happened on January 6th. And the prosecution, the, the House impeachment managers, the Democrats, are trying to prove that President Trump, the former president, was directly responsible, that his words since the November election, saying that this election election was stolen from him and that there was this grand conspiracy uh, for him to lose this election, that he incited violence in that insurrection. And they are trying to prove that his words at that Capitol Hill speech, at that rally, uh, the Stop the Steal rally that happened right before people marched to the Capitol and overtook the, the Capitol police officers there, was a direct relation to what President Trump had been saying leading up to January 6th since the November election and specifically on that day. That's what they're trying to prove. Of course, uh, on the other side, Trump's defense lawyers are saying he has freedom of speech. He has the right 
right to say whatever he wants to say and that you are infringing upon his rights as an American citizen. All right, we're going to leave it there. But uh, CNN's Nadia Romero, thank you for that update. And I'm sure we will come back to that story uh, right throughout the week here on The Tonight Show. Now, back now to our panel in studio and the issues around the pandemic. Uh, we're joined by Nell Collins and Ian O'Reardon. Um, let's start, I suppose, with the comments from uh, the Tarnishja this evening. Leo Vradker, he was talking about March 5th when this lockdown is due to end and talking about the restrictions being eased uh, mm -hmm. somewhat. What do you think we can expect? What's realistic, Neil Collins? Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm very slow to speculate, Kira. In fairness, because um, unlike the Tarnishta. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there, there's going to have to be um, a big discussion, but in Neffet, there's going to have to be the cabinet subcommittee are going to have to consider it also, and ultimately a decision taken by cabinet. Um, we, we've been here before. We've seen and learned from the experiences of the, the previous opening ups and the previous lockdowns. Uh, we're in a different space now. The vaccinations are coming. We don't want to undo the, the good work that the, the vaccination program has yielded so far. That's about to kick off to another level, as you know, with the GPs kicking in next week with the over 70s cohort. Um, but what would the priorities be for this government if you were going to reopen? I mean, we talked about schools there. We've heard you know, construction sites, um, and we have the Tanish to say in this evening, you know, allowing households to perhaps meet another household or a family uh, member outdoors would be next on his priority list. Yeah, obviously the schools and construction, as you say, um, but, you know, public health and safety will be the caveat for everything. So whether or not we will uh, go into the space where you'll look at uh, putting a number on the number of house visits. You know, house visits were uh, part, a major part of the last surge and a major part of the problem in terms of how the, the virus spread. So all of that will have to be subject to public health advice. And, and I know helpful? you're pushing me. Yeah, but I'm just wondering, is this helpful? Because we no, now but... have, you know, the Tanishta, we have a member of government four weeks out saying, you know, um, I'm not going to be going to the barbers anytime sooner. The hairdressers, they won't be open. I've, you know, ordered my hair clippers online. So, you know, that's very, very, a strong indication to those yeah. industries that they won't reopen but we could look at perhaps households meeting outdoors I mean he he does give detail and then everybody else like yourself says we can't tell you anything yeah well look I mean I, I didn't hear him I didn't hear him being interviewed in relation to it he's giving his view maybe it's his personal opinion the government will have to take a collective decision on it but I think it's really important to manage expectation on this occasion because we're not going to have a big big bang approach in terms of opening up everything and the tarnish they did and the government took a decision today in relation to supporting businesses further businesses um, you know it was a 60 million package made available further business supports which are important because not all businesses are able to get back into the space where they can trade or, or get back into a level of activity Activity, so it's important. But we're not going to be able to tell them this evening when they're going to do that by the no, looks no. of things. Look, I, mean, uh, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to give people false hope. Well, look, with the best one in the world, and we, we have a collective endeavour here of trying to mm -hmm. save lives and, and, uh, and suppress the virus. But, you know, today is a classic example of what, of what goes wrong. You have a leak from the Department of, of, of Education and then the Taunishta does what the Taunishta does. And, and it's, it's deeply unhelpful. The Taoiseach gave the proper message over the weekend, which was, we've learned from December, we're not going there again. We have had a body count of over a thousand people in January. We have had more cases in January than we had in the entirety of 2020. And then Tarnishta comes out today and gives the indications that we can soften up, we can loosen up, we can meet each other again in the short to medium term. Now that is exactly 
the wrong message because what we need to be talking about is as and Kelly and the Labour Party today are advocating for is a complete aggressive suppression of this virus. And for his language, puts Niall in a difficult position, puts government on the back foot and gives the, the, the people a sense that actually we're going back into rolling lockdown reopening. And we are going to have no successful reopening of schools if the, if the Tornishta is still talking about having a relaxation of restrictions uh, next month. Uh, that's not the only thing he said, because he does like to talk when he gets going, uh, does our Leo Fratker. He also was commenting on the UK's uh, mandatory hotel quarantine today. And he said, you know, that some of the measures that they've introduced, including fines of up to 10,000 and imprisonment if you breach the hotel uh, quarantine uh, rules, that they were a bit extreme and too authoritarian. Well, yeah, he's, well, he's, used, he's used a disproportionate language before. And look, the people are ahead of us on this. There is nobody arguing that we should have a lessening of restrictions. There's nobody that I am talking to from whatever sector that may have said it before. The mood shift is complete in Ireland and the, and the public are completely ahead of the political system now. And they're completely ahead of, what, of where Leo Varadkar is. So do so, you think the public would like to see our government follow uh, the UK in this? They I, have I think in terms of... countries on their yes, red Yes, I, I think 33 quarantine. countries. Yeah, I think 33 countries at least. I think we should have a blanket uh, hotel quarantine system. I think we need to have testing and tracing. I know it's difficult. But what we cannot do, and I think the minister probably agrees with me, we cannot have a situation where we loosen up we have, uh, you know, families meeting each other for Easter and then we have May, which is back to where we are now because people are literally at the end of their tether and we have to have a different strategy because what's happened up until now hasn't worked for a, for a long period of time. And I thought last weekend the Taoiseach, Taoiseach had acknowledged that. But now the Tornishta, who is, who is really not helping the situation, has, ha, has, has put his own view into the mix which I think is not going to be helpful for government in trying to drive home a message of what we all but need we to achieve But we also saw, together. in fairness um, to the Taunashti, he was asked these questions today, and these are new measures which have been introduced by the um, UK Health Minister today that are going to impact Irish residents, and they made that very clearly. Mm -hmm. um, so he was asked for his response on those. Do you think those measures are too extreme? Because we've had our Transport Minister also say in the last year or two that we should perhaps have alignment with the UK when it comes to quarantine. Yeah, well, I, I think everybody agrees we, we should have as much alignment as possible. Now, we, we won't have total alignment and we have to have proportionality. And I think it's important to you know keep the context in terms of quarantine and inward air travel into the country, that the numbers um, flying into the country are, are really, really reduced and they're falling. And what we're seeing is a lot of people coming back from holiday destinations and things like that. And, you know, they have to go and uh, quarantine in their own homes. And we know that, and that's on the, you know, the minister signed the statutory instrument in relation to that. So and we know the debate, Niall Collins, about yeah. whether or not that's effective. Yeah, well, look, the regime is there and the Garda Síochána can check and, and the HSE, you fill out your passenger locator form. But the, in terms of uh, the, the legislation for quarantining and the, the idea of having a number of hotels, that is being worked on actively by government. There's a number of departments involved in it. The legislation has been drawn up. Uh, the government is... There's no date, though, the government, do we, as yeah, when well, that's really Well, I think the legislation will, will possibly um, be published and be... Um, 
in the Dáil and the Shannon next week. So it, it's moving apace. It, it is an issue which the government is dealing with. But let's go back to that issue of alignment with the UK because it would be very different. We are talking about hotel quarantining for two countries. They're talking about 33. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about you know asking people to remain at home for five days, essentially, if they can get a yeah. second negative uh, PCR test. In the UK, they're saying at least 10 days mandatory two um, COVID uh, negative tests, you know, they're, they're yeah, more so look, extreme the, the, measures. The, the so where is our alignment the, Yeah, well, there? the legislation um, will, will give the flexibility. So let's debate and enact the legislation and it will give uh, the government and the minister the flexibility to add more countries to the list uh, when it's necessary. So none of this is set in stone. A lot stone. of people will be it, saying it, that it's, it's necessary now. Absolutely. Look, we're aware of uh, we're aware of where the threats are coming from, and as countries drop on and drop off, um, and their numbers, they are all being monitored. So th there's no, there's nothing being ruled out in terms of who goes on the list or what countries go on the list. All of that will be decided when the legislation is enacted, uh, and and the government will 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 take its advice from NEFID okay. and from. It's, it's, Ian, I want to get it, you back it, in there. Yeah, it's just it's it's as inevitable as we moved on the mask wearing scenario, what feels like a million years ago, that we're going to move to a 33 country scenario in very short time, and hopefully to a blanket scenario. So I don't understand why governments don't do this now, because as I said, the people are ahead of the political system. So rather than having a row over two versus 33, why don't we just go for it and ensure that we can completely suppress this so we don't have, as I keep saying, the opening up and closing down again. Um, if we could have a discussion on that basis, because we know we're going to get there anyway, I think the people have more faith in what, in, in what, in what politics in general and, and you know, what, what government is doing. Because if government succeeds, we all succeed. We're not, you know, criticising for the sake of criticising. Yeah, we're criticising because, as I said already, we lost a thousand people in January. A thousand people and more cases in January than now, the briefly, entirety of last year. Just to make the point, whether it's, it's 33 countries or two countries, the government will do what is right at the time when the legislation is ready. And, you know, there's nobody nailing, we're not nailing ourselves to the floor and saying we're only going to do two countries. We will do what is right. When, when, okay, when I want to move to the other comments that came from uh, Phil Hay there. Um, she was talking about the, the, the workload and the burnout uh, among her members. Um, she said she, she sent in a proposal, the INMO sent in a proposal in November into the government that the workers would be compensated and recognised in, in some way. I think she was looking for 10 days additional annual leave. Is that being considered at all by government? Yeah, well, look, I mean, first I want to say everybody acknowledges the, the, the absolute uh, professionalism and dedication that our frontline healthcare workers, they're stepping up to the plate every single day of the week. But she did and say specifically, Niall, that she hasn't heard anything back and that the proposal was sent in, in November. So is it being yeah. considered or is it well, unrealistic, do you think? It, it absolutely is being considered um, by the department and by the HSE. And I, I'm not, look, I'm not in that department, so I can't give, I don't have the benefit of the detail in relation to it but if uh, and there is processes as we know for um, government and for unions to engage in relation to pay claims so if that claim is in as we know it is um, that will be given due consideration by the HSE and by the department and there, I'm sure there will be a negotiation around it. So do you think there will be some recognition compensation? Look, I, I'm, I, I can't second guess what's going to come out of this, Kira. in fairness, but suffice to say, everybody acknowledges um, the, the, the absolute um, effort which has been made by our frontline healthcare workers. And, you know, we, we know the stresses and strains in relation to it. My own wife is a, a frontline healthcare worker. I see it. We're all living with these workers in our communities, and I think they have to be acknowledged for it. We proposed it on May Day last year 
to do in Ireland what was done in France. We need to pay the student, student nurses and midwives and we need to give a bonus payment for those who are putting their lives on the line for us. Does that include our doctors, our paramedics, our yeah, hospital We, we could mirror it what's happened in the UK and particularly in France. But we made this proposal last May and I think what Philly Hay has suggested today and the IMLO have, have suggested today is very reasonable and will go a long way for reinstalling a level of good faith into the whole discussion and I think government should seriously consider it. All right, we're going to leave it there. But coming up, a winter storm heads our way. Uh, just how severe will this week's predicted weather event be? Do stay with us. Well, a snow ice warning for most of the country is in place from Thursday morning. And as the country prepares for a possible winter snowstorm, Alan O'Reilly of Carlow Weather joins me now. And motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert from the Sunday Independent is also joining us on Skype this evening. You're both very welcome to the programme. I want to start uh, with you, Alan. It was called Beast uh, from the East 2. I think we'll all remember Beast uh, from the East 1. Has it been overhyped in any way? I saw certainly a scattering of, of snow in Dublin uh, today, but nothing too serious. Perhaps it's, it's different in other parts of the country. Yeah, well, variation in terms of snow showers has varied widely across the country, but it's mainly only been a small few areas of the east that have seen any real significant snow showers. So it was never going to be the level of beast from the east. It just doesn't have the same level of cold temperatures. It's coming from Scandinavia more so rather than Siberia. Obviously, the wind chill has made it feel bitterly cold, but just not quite as cold as it was in 2018. However, we are going to see snow showers continuing tonight. And then, as you say, that snow warning for most of the country coming into operation on Thursday. And we have a battleground scenario where we have a weather front approaching from the southwest meeting cold air and it's going to fall as snow. It's going to move up across the country slowly and it will fall as snow in many places, but it will turn to sleet and to rain then in the southwest and the south of that. Very hard to predict exactly how much snow we're going mm. to see, but there is a risk of um, some decent accumulations of snow in many parts, especially kind of in the southern areas at first and then moving into the Midlands and possibly into the southeast and the east into Friday. And will that be the end of it on Friday? Is it sort of a 48-hour uh, weather event? Well, the weather models have been struggling a lot. So as I say, it is a battleground between cold to the east and then this Atlantic system, which is going to try and push in. Some of the weather models have shown the cold air persisting for a little bit longer. So we could see some more snow possibly on Saturday or at least sleet and snow with snow on high ground. And especially in the northeast, Friday into Saturday. And then we have another band coming in on Sunday. Probably the rain will take hold at that stage, but also some very strong winds into the weekend. So we do have some, um, unfortunately, unclement weather following, be it sleet, snow or rain, it's going to be pretty nasty for the weekend. And what about the word that has um, lit up social media today? I have to say it's one I hadn't heard of before, Graupel. Can we expect Graupel? Am I even pronouncing that right? Yeah, graupel. So it's it's basically snow pellets. It's real fine kind of pellets of snow. It's it's when um, snow, if basically very small snowflake, gets tossed around and, and gets covered in, in a very 
tin coating of uh, frost, really, ice. And it, it's the difference between that and hail is when you touch it, 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 it readily falls apart. But uh, I, I've been saying the word for years, but it seems that most of the country has discovered it on social media. So um, it's, uh, it's interesting. At least we're all learning a bit of something during this lockdown about weather. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks, uh, Alan O'Reilly there uh, from Carlo Weather. With that update, our motoring journalist, Geraldine Herbert from the Sunday Independent, also joins me uh, now via Skype. I think this can be quite difficult, actually, driving conditions uh, for motorists because it's not going to be heavy enough, I think, to stop us from travelling, and yet it still potentially could be quite dangerous, Geraldine. So what's your advice then for, for motorists? How can they prepare? Yeah, any sort of snow here always puts us in difficulty because we just simply don't do it often enough to get experience. But the key thing if you're going to go out on the road and you do have to make an essential journey is just to slow down. You really have to drive the road much, much slower than you normally would, even if you're well used to it, and maintain a really, really big gap between you and the car in front. Because not only do you run the risk of careering into a car because it takes so long to slow down in snow, but you also need to read the road ahead of you. Make sure that you're aware there's a junction coming up or a bend because that's where you run into difficulty. It's the slowing down. So just if you do have to brake, brake lightly, brake gently, but brake early and just be prepared. And you mentioned there that, of course, we should only be leaving the house if we're making essential uh, journeys. Mm -hmm. And yet you would have to wonder when you see the, the travel um, and the traffic on our roads at the moment. What are, what are we seeing, uh, Geraldine? Yeah, it's interesting. In the first lockdown, we saw about a 75% reduction in traffic volumes. We're not seeing anything like that now. It's down to about, we've seen a 50% reduction. So there's definitely much more people on the move. And yet we're supposed to be in a similar level five with, you know, a similar sort of essential journeys only restrictions. So there's definitely more cars on the road. Are motorists experiencing difficulties, uh, Geraldine, because they're not using their vehicles as often as they would be? I've certainly heard, heard of that anecdotally. What's your experience been? Yeah, again, this was a big issue in the March lockdown. Again, because there's more traffic on the road, there's more cars on the move, so it's not such an issue. And I think we learned our lesson the last time, Kira. We might have replaced that battery that was, you know, that wasn't in, in the best of condition in March and maybe failed us. So I think it's not as much of an issue as it was in the past. And as I said, I think, you know, people know better now to keep their car taking over, to take it out for the journey, to, you know, so we're better at doing this. All right, Geraldine Herbert, thanks for your time this evening. And joining me here in studio is Peter McVerry of the McVerry Trust because the Dublin Region Homeless Executive has triggered its Extreme Weather Initiative protocol. Uh, good evening to you, Peter. What exactly does that mean for services? It means there's extra beds going to be made available. There'll be 101 extra beds uh, available for... Uh, there will be a bed available for everybody who wants it. Nobody will have to sleep rough. A lot of those beds will be in existing hostels. Uh, for example, we'll have fold-up beds. We'll put them in the common areas like the sitting room uh, and accommodate extra people in that way. And there will be a bed for everybody who wants it in the Dublin area. In the Dublin area. Um, but part of your work is to go out to counties like Kildare and Meath and Wicklow um, yeah, who perhaps we, wouldn't have the same uh, homeless services available. No, I, I don't think there are any extra beds there, but we will have transport uh, in those counties and we will be going around during the night and picking up anybody who's sleeping rough and bringing them into one of the beds if they want to come in and we'll return them again the next day if that's what they, they want to do. But they might come in and stay in for maybe three or four days while the, this cold weather uh, continues. So and is there that will... an option that is available now? Because at one stage I think there was a, you know, um, a suggestion, an idea that you know, hostels were just there for people to sleep in overnight and then during the day they were you know, sent back out onto the streets. That's 
that's no longer the case. That's no, right? Once the pandemic uh, hit, uh, no, all hostels now are 24 hour access. So you can stay in all day if you want to. You can come and go as you please. Yeah, the, and the one night hostel is gone where people got a bed for one night, then they were kicked out the next morning and they had to try and get another bed for the next night. That's gone. When people get a bed now, they have it for maybe a few months at a time. So it's 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 more secure It's uh, and it doesn't, uh, doesn't have the same problems as the one-night beds do. Uh, I recall reporting back uh, during the Beast from the East and uh, coming across stories of people who were just didn't want to yeah. go into a hostel, notwithstanding <clears throat> the inclement uh, weather. Um, do you face that difficulty and, and what can you do yeah, in those you, situations? You can't do anything. If a person refuses to go in, you can't do anything. Now, very few did refuse to come in during the last Beast from the East. Uh, this one won't be so severe, so there may be more people deciding to sleep in tents uh, or in sheltered areas that they have uh, uh, picked out for themselves. But if they don't want to come in, there's very little you can do about it. In the last one, which was extremely severe, we did have a doctor coming with us. And if he decided that a person's mental health was such they weren't in a position to make an informed choice, then he would uh, get them into a mental hospital for the period of the of the of the of the storm. So that's the situation in Dublin and uh, the surrounding counties. What about in the regions? What supports are available there? Because this isn't just a Dublin problem anymore, is it? Or a Dublin? No, issue? it's not. It's a worldwide. It's a it's a it's a nationwide problem. And indeed, the biggest increase in homelessness is actually in rural areas. I mean, it's still small compared to the cities, but the increase is the biggest. What's happening there, I don't know. It's up to each local authority to organise something. But if they don't have hostels in their in their locality, there's probably nothing they can do. If they do have hostels, then it's up to the hostel to uh, to agree with the local authority to uh, to to fund extra beds in the hostel for this for the duration of this. Do we have any sense of the number of people now who are are sleeping rough? It's very difficult to say because I think we could generally say in the region of 80 to maybe 140. But it's very difficult to say because some people sleep rough in areas where we do count them. We do count them a couple of times a year. But if you're sleeping in, in uh, Stevens Green, which is a locked park, <laughs> the people who are counting them don't climb over the railings and go in and try and find them. So they are excluded. There may be people sleeping in apartment blocks on the, uh, in, in the common areas. Uh, they're excluded. There may be people sleeping in the Phoenix Park. There always are. But it's such a huge area, you couldn't possibly count them. So the value of the numbers of rough sleepers is not so much the actual number, it's the trend. If we see the trend going up, then that's a problem. If we see the trend coming down, then we're, we're, we're delighted. In but it's in the region of 80 to 140. Of the people that come across and use your service, I'm wondering how COVID-19 has impacted on them because there must be so many of the support services that they rely on that have been shut because of this pandemic. Yeah, it's been a huge problem. Uh, people who, with mental health, for example, or people with addictions, all their support services were closed. The drop-in centres where they could go for advice, go for a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, meet other people, have a chat, they are closed. Uh, AA meetings, NA meetings, most of them are closed. The, uh, the, the treatment centres closed. Even counselling uh, had to be done by phone or by, by Zoom, which is not very <laughs> attractive. And certainly for homeless people, it's not very uh, satisfactory. So, yeah, all the support structures were withdrawn from them. And uh, 
yeah, it has been very, very difficult for them. And if you are on the street uh, and you're on the street all day, there's no cafes you can go into. There's nowhere you can go in and get warm. Uh, uh, you can get a cup of tea and take it away with you, but you're still out in the cold. It's been very, very difficult. And for, very isolating, for, for rough, I would imagine. For rough sleepers, very isolating. So I think there has been anecdotally a, a number of people, perhaps quite a number of people who have relapsed back into addiction. Uh, and certainly uh, people's mental health has deteriorated, but that's a problem with the general population as well. But certainly for homeless people with mental health issues, uh, they have deteriorated. And the one positive is those treatment centres are finally beginning to reopen. They are open now. Yeah, there's a backlog, of course, which doesn't help. But yes, they're open again. Uh, yes. Uh, we're going to leave it there. But Peter McVeary, thank you for coming in to us. Uh, as always, that's it from us here tonight. Matt Cooper will be here tomorrow from 10pm from all the team. Good night, take care and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.